Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. In every episode, we'll have engaging conversations with WNL's expert faculty, bringing you again to the colonnade, even if you're hundreds of miles away. Just like the conversations that happen every day after class here at WNL. You'll hear from your favorite faculty on fascinating topics and meet professors who can introduce you to new worlds and continue your journey of lifelong learning. Our guest today is Assistant Professor of Computer Science, Taha Khan. Taha joined WNL in 2020 after completing his PhD at the University of Illinois, Chicago. His research focuses on computer security, privacy, and human-computer interaction, including cybercrime. Prior to earning his doctorate, he completed his undergraduate degree in electrical engineering at Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. Taha, we're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you, Ruth. It's a pleasure to be here. So cybersecurity is its a complicated topic, but it basically means protecting a computer or a computer system against unauthorized access or attack. There are a lot of bad guys out there. We've all heard the terms malware, ransomware, and phishing. What are the differences among these nefarious agents, and how, how do their attacks affect us in everyday lives? So uh, to better understand how these different nefarious characters and individuals operate, we first need to take a little bit of insight into how the cyber world around us has evolved over the past 20 to 25 years. So back in the day when we see uh, when we talk about the internet, the internet was just something normal that was something that was coming up. And uh, if someone did some kind of malicious activity on their net, it was mostly just for fun because there wasn't any kind of commerce being conducted over on the internet. You couldn't essentially gain a lot of financial uh, benefit out of performing malicious activities and uh, breaking down websites and breaking into systems. Uh, and these people or these individuals that were doing these kinds of nefarious activities back in the day where we refer to them as script kitties. So people who would write scripts uh, sitting uh, in home or just out of fun. Did you say script kitties? Script kitties. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's an internet slang for uh, old hackers that are playing, trying to play around and break systems. Gotcha. So script kitties were the, the big deal back 20 years ago. But today, uh, what most cybercrime is revolving around is financial gain. And it's more organized and it's more diversified. And we've got different types of nefarious actors that operate today. And uh, they have different motives and they have different specializations. And in some cases, we, we also see that these nefarious actors uh, are sometimes not looking for financial gain, but they're looking to control information or to spy on individuals. So some examples of these modern day actors could be social engineers who are trying to socially engineer uh, other individuals and get sensitive information out of them. Uh, people who are targeting high level professionals and this process is known as spear phishing, where instead of sending phishing emails or phishing out there just in the wild, you're doing some kind of targeted phishing on specific individuals where you know that you can gain a lot of incentive on, a lot of benefit, financial or otherwise benefit on. There's hackers 
uh, individuals and groups who specialize more on the technical aspects. Uh, there, there can be insider threats uh, for governments and employees. So that, that's also one thing that's very common with these kinds of nefarious actors. And sometimes these actors can be governments. And what's important to note that each of these actors have different capabilities and they operate according to their capabilities. So, for example, a government has a lot more control and they can modify a lot more things about the cyber infrastructure that an individual hacker won't be able to do. They certainly do make our lives difficult, don't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then talking a little bit about what kind of effects they have on individuals as a whole, and that's spread out all across the spectrum. So there's obviously today we know that from cyber breaches and the acts of cyber criminals, there's definitely a financial loss associated with that. But in addition to that, there's also economic losses. And, and a good example of that would be the recent colonial pipeline hack, where we saw that when there was the pipeline was not functional, the gas prices surged and there was a shortage of, of gas. And overall, sometimes, and uh, I see that these financial and economic factors build into uh, and affect the overall well-being by causing certain psychological effects. And these are some things that we might not hear about in the news. So for example, if a certain individual got hacked or had their identity compromised online, they would have a hard time for the next couple of days trying to recover or fix the issues that they had faced. It used to be that you could spot a phishing scheme a mile away. And lately, however, it seems that hackers have become much more sophisticated in their attacks. To protect ourselves, we we really need to be more proactive instead of reactive. In your opinion, what are the most important measures we should be taking proactively to protect ourselves? Yeah, I think this is very essential, not for just people who are working in technology or cybersecurity, but everyone across the globe or everyone across the spectrum, because technology has just become so much integrated in our daily lives. And the most uh, fundamental step that everyone can take is to take individual uh, actions that would protect their online identities. Now, one thing in regards to that is passwords because passwords essentially allow us to log into certain websites that are specialized for us, that are, are unique to us and are behind a login wall. So people should be focused on not reusing passwords. And the issue here is that if you reuse passwords, if your uh, Spotify account has the same password as your bank account, then if a, a Spotify is part of a data breach, your password is out there, attackers will try to reuse that password in different websites. And if you're reusing that password across different websites, then it would not just be one website that compromised, but actually multiple websites are, that have essentially been compromised. So what are good passwords? Secure passwords, as uh, more recent research has shown, are not random characters and digits, but actually passwords that are made up of random English language words and they tend to have a higher entropy and are actually easier for users to remember because they're actual English words and they are harder for attackers to break. Um, and people should also practice in changing passwords from time to time. I think that's a great thing and that's uh, that keeps their password secure. 
Uh, another step that individuals can take is enable multi-factor authentication, especially on critical websites and services. In addition, one other thing that can be quite helpful is the use of a VPN or a virtual private network if they're using a public Wi-Fi or are in a public area. So for example, if you're connecting internet from a coffee shop or airports or restaurants, I think they should be using a VPN. And it's that's a different question of what VPNs are uh, trustworthy and which ones are not. And I've actually uh, done some research on that. And I f I've, what I feel like is that any free VPN comes at a price. So I encourage individuals to use paid VPNs because they are usually more transparent in their privacy policies. Um, other things that individual can do is educate themselves on how to better identify scams and phishing emails and text messages. And what I've seen recently is that I've been getting a lot of spam text messages that have some kind of link and the, the text messages crafted in such a way that, oh, you made a payment to person X of $200 and click here to verify the payment or to decline that payment. And it would be a text message structure that would be um, so clickbaity that you would uh, right away want to click that link. And it's usually a scam link. Oh, um, that's frightening. <laughs> Very frightening. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. so you had said, um, you know, creating a password for different sites. You know, when you forget your password, different organizations will ask different key phrases. And there are always like the same list of, of 20 or, or whatever, where it says, mm -hmm. what is your mother's maiden name? What is your favorite pet's name? Where did you, where were you born? And... And it seems like it's almost like they're collecting that data because I'll be on a site, they'll ask that question, I'll be like, I'm not sure I've given that information before. Mm -hmm. Is that, are they collecting extra data or am I just not remembering? So uh, what you're mentioning are security questions that websites usually have just to verify an individual's identity in case they've forgotten a password. Yes. And these questions are structured in a manner so that they would be unique to an individual. So for example, a pet name and your mother's maiden name or your childhood friend or your first car, etc. And uh, what's important here is that even though they're unique, depending on what an information shares online publicly, and a cyber criminal could actually infer a lot of this information from other websites. For example, if someone has a really public Facebook profile page, their friend lists are public, it wouldn't be too hard to find out who their mom is. Or uh, going through their pictures, you could figure out or in reading a caption what their pet name is. So uh, in addition to having secure passwords, I feel like Security questions are, are, are a great thing to verify an individual's identity, but it's also an individual's responsibility to make an informed decision on what they decide to share online uh, publicly with other individuals. And uh, they should be aware that sharing too much information can lead to potential doxing or even a leak of personal information if there's a a data breach and what i what i try to uh, view this as is that we can't control what's going to happen in the future because we don't know what companies what organizations may be part of a data breach but we are currently responsible of controlling our present and controlling the information that we put out there for others to access good to know 
My daughter works in cybersecurity, and in early December, she and her colleagues were working around the clock. She shared with me that the Federal Trade Commission issued an alert warning companies of a new vulnerability in their computer system, which was identified as Log4j. This vulnerability was actually discovered by users of Minecraft, a hugely popular video game. And unfortunately, the FTC announcement also alerted hackers. Software engineers hurried to protect their computer systems against hackers who would try to gain access to their systems. And yet, what seemed another race of good against evil. In your opinion, Taha, should the FTC have acted differently? I think the FTC did the right thing. So what the log4j vulnerability was is what we call a zero-day vulnerability, something that was new uh, and something that had not previously been discovered. So zero-day vulnerabilities are usually a big thing for IT individuals because they require updating information and updating systems. So actually, the vulnerability, when it was previously announced, uh, it was announced by Apache, which is the organization that has developed Log4j. And they had announced it on certain message boards and resources where technology professionals usually go and access that information or read off of. But regular companies, not everyone's going there and reading that. So where the FTC stepped in was to make a more general public announcement of this vulnerability so that regular individuals and companies who might be using this vulnerable software could go ahead and update that software. And this was an example of the, the way Log4j was fixed is how usually vulnerabilities when identified in large pieces of software that are being used widely are fixed. Uh, an individual who is acting in good faith tells the company or the organization that they found a vulnerability. The company goes ahead and fixes that vulnerability and releases an updated version. And then it's the job of the other companies who are using that software or organizations to go ahead and update their, their systems so that their previous versions are invalid and the, they, they've updated the vulnerable versions and with the ones that are more secure. This is a great segue to discuss your work on protecting computer systems from covert and side channels, another means by which hackers can hijack digital information for nefarious reasons. When you introduced these hazards to me, it, it reminded me of how in the movie Ocean's Eleven, thieves rented an office space next to their targets and used it to bypass a building security system. Would you explain to us the difference between covert and side channels and give real life examples of each? Yeah, of course. Uh, so the fundamental difference between a side channel and a covert channel is the number of actors who are participating. So in a side channel, you'd only have one malicious actor who's using some kind of shared resource with uh, an entity that's legitimate, and they're trying to use some kind of inference mechanism to learn about activities or extract information from that legitimate individual or entity. So for example, an example of a side channel would be if I'm on a shared network with someone, I could look at their traffic browsing patterns just by the amount or volume of traffic 
that their computer is generating at a given point in time and try to infer what kind of browsing they're performing. So for example, if someone's browsing Wall Street Journal, their computer wouldn't be generating a lot of traffic because they'd spend up most of the time reading an article and not loading information off the web. But let's say if someone's watching a YouTube video or watching Netflix, their computer could be generating a lot of traffic. So an example of a side channel here would be looking at the traffic patterns. And to be able to look at them, you'd have to be on a shared network or a shared wire where both of you are sharing the same resources and looking at someone else's pattern to infer something. Now, cohort channels are slightly different here. In cohort channels, uh, you have two malicious entities who are trying to communicate on a channel that's not intended for that purpose of communication. Now, in computer networks, uh, information is transferred in bits and bytes. And one example of a cohort channel in computer networks is that you use certain bytes that are not allocated as part of protocols and use them to encode certain bits and pieces of information that the other individual receiving those bytes would be able to decode. And one of the requirements of establishing a covert channel is you need to have an agreed upon protocol between these two malicious entities who are trying to communicate. Because without that protocol, you wouldn't be able to make sense of what's being communicated. That makes me want to go watch Ocean's Eleven again with that perspective. <laughs> well, you spent your part of your doctoral research measuring the cost of typosquatting. And for those who may not have heard of this term before, typosquatting is when people register a website like facebook.com instead of facebook.com. That is using one O instead of two. And they use this bogus site for spammy advertising or phishing for passwords. In your research, Taha, you figured out a way to measure how much time people lose because of these schemes. And you also put a dollar value on it, which I thought was fascinating, especially because of all the time I've spent creating, remembering, and recovering passwords. I, I have sometimes wondered how much money all that time is worth. Can you give us a few examples of the costs of cybercrime in terms of time lost and what we can do to manage these costs? Of course. So going back to how we were able to put a dollar value to that uh, time lost uh, typo squatting, what we essentially did in that study was we were able to figure out the federal wage per hour and using those results, we were able to determine how much time is actually lost to type of squatting for a given individual uh, throughout a year. And we then scale that up with the federal wage and the U.S. population. So giving an estimate of the time lost and its corresponding lost productivity in financial terms because of the act of type of squatting. So like you said, there, there's uh, cyber crime leads to lost productivity. And you can have more basic versions of this. For example, the time someone spends reading a spam email or type of squatting or dealing with online scammers, even though they, they might not end up being a part of that scam, but they still have, they sp spend some time interacting and that's time in lost productivity. But there's also a more complex 
uh, versions where it's hard to put an exact dollar value and there's lost productivity in terms of time. So for example, if someone's a victim of credit card fraud, and if you ended up giving your credit card information to a phishing website and they now used your credit card information on to purchase some items and you didn't realize until the fact your statement came out so that when you when you realize that and then there's a whole process of filing claims and following up with the company so there's this additive cost of looking at and fixing things that have been damaged as a result of this uh, cybercrime. And a, another example could be uh, going back and trying to reset passwords if you suspect that a certain website has been uh, uh, breached or if you were, like I said, reusing passwords on different websites. And sometimes these costs can be associated with denial of service uh, attacks. So denial of service attacks essentially focus on uh, bringing down a system. And when a system's not functional, then you can't be productive and then there's lost productivity. So that's also another kind of cost that is associated with cybercrime. What we can essentially do to manage these costs is just focus on good security and privacy practices so that we're less likely to be a victim of one of these scenarios where there's gonna be an associated cost for remediation. Yeah, the old saying, time equals money, is pretty true here, isn't it? You also conduct research on security vulnerabilities in the cloud, which more and more is becoming a part of our everyday life. What are the most alarming security threats to cloud storage, and what can people do to protect themselves here? Yeah, so... This is a topic I'm super interested to talk about because it was part of my dissertation. And um, what's happening with the cloud right now is that these modern services such as Google Drive and Dropbox, and they've existed for almost a decade now. So Dropbox has been in since 2007, Drive has been since 2012. And what's happened is that there's they've accumulated a lot of users who've put in a lot of information or data in the cloud over these years. And because storage is cheap, people eventually never end up going back and revisiting these files and deleting them. And the ch main challenge here, or the main risk here, is that uh, in, in case of a data breach or a hack, there might be information that's lying on the cloud there that may no longer be helpful or useful, but it could still contain sensitive information. So for example, if I had my tax returns from 2015 lying in my cloud, I mean, those tax old tax returns aren't essentially providing any utility. I mean, I'm done filing my taxes for that year, but they still contain sensitive financial information. So what users can essentially do is make sure that revisit files from time to time that are present on their cloud, make sure that it's, if there's information that's no longer useful, they can go ahead and manage that. Now, that was one of the goals of my dissertation was to use machine learning to identify such files and provide a system for users to automatically manage, manage them or provide them with feedback or suggestions, which would, uh, by listing the files that are more, more likely on for, for this kind of management. And we've actually created a web app, which is it's still in its early stages, 
but users can log into their Google Drive accounts on our web app, and they would then be provided with a list of files identified by our machine learning classifiers, which are more likely or worthy for management. So they can either go ahead and delete those files if they're no longer useful, or um, they can manually put encryption on those files or protect them if they feel like they might contain sensitive information and they want, still want to keep them on the cloud. So that's an added layer of security that individuals can put on their files. Wow. Wow. So how, how far away are you from having that launch? So we're essentially focusing only on the summers because I have, uh, I'm busy teaching <laughs> most of the annual year. So the, the, the last summer we were able to develop a proof of concept web app and we did some testing. The, the main challenge here is that we are running uh, a lot of API services with Google and the cost really adds up because we collect a lot of information. We have to collect a lot of information about the files to be able to decide which ones are worthy of management. So for example, if, if there's images, we'll look for certain objects in these images. And a part of that is what we use is for object identification of these images is a third-party API provided by Google. And that is costly because it's it, it, there's an associated cost with a number of requests. So we're still working on either porting that to our local systems or looking for alternatives that may be more sustainable. As an expert in cybersecurity, what keeps you up at night? Honestly, I fear about the consequences of this thing that we call the internet if it were to ever break down. Or let's say if there were really large-scale cyber attacks on physical infrastructures such as factories or power plants or places like airports where there would be a cost to human life. So I feel like focusing on how to properly secure these systems that are now connected with the internet is, is really essential. And this is something that does concern me and from time to time. Then on a more positive note, what excites you about the future of cybersecurity? So uh, positively, I feel like there's a lot of potential for growth in this field and uh, a lot of room for training individuals and uh, the students of today who are going to be the professionals of tomorrow to go and work in this field and provide these services that are going to be soon needed by individuals and organizations all across the spectrum. And I feel like cybersecurity specialists are going to become more like accountants. So when tax season comes, every mom and pop shop will go to their um, family accountant to get their taxes done. And it's going to be similar in a way that these small businesses, and not just large organizations, but small businesses as well, are going to try to go and find a cybersecurity specialist so we can audit their systems, who can make sure that the payment systems they're using are up to date. And uh, they, they're, if they're storing any credit card or financial information, all that is secure. So I think this is going to be something that's going to what we'll see in the near future. And this really excites me because then we can train more people and teach more people about cybersecurity and get them interested. Yeah, what a what a concept, huh? That's something to to look forward to. 
I'm also fascinated by white hat hacking. These are the good guys. They're academics and other ethical hackers who work with software companies by helping them discover security flaws. Uh, it gives them time to patch the vulnerabilities before information about them becomes public. Can you tell us more about the bright side of hacking? Yeah, of course. So what I really like about cybersecurity as a field that it's a combination of offensive and defensive strategies. And uh, what you mentioned as white hat hacking is a defensive strategies. And if, if it weren't for these white hat hackers, uh, there would be a lot of vulnerabilities that would go unnoticed. And what essentially differentiates between a white hat hacker or a black hat hacker is just the intention. Because both of these hackers are using the same set of tools. The, sa the set of tools are in, and systems available to both of these individuals are the same, whereas a white hat hacker would focus more on identifying a vulnerability and following the correct ethical steps of reporting that, whereas a black hat hacker would then go ahead and try to benefit in an illicit manner if they find a vulnerability. A variety of organizations and businesses have been targeted. These include hospitals, schools, and oil and gas companies. These attacks affect everyone. The, the most recent attack that I'm aware of also created an interesting marketing opportunity for Philadelphia cream cheese. During the Christmas holiday, my family had fresh bagels, but we could not find cream cheese anywhere. I discovered that in October, a cyber attack against Philadelphia brand cream cheese contributed to a nationwide cream cheese shortage before the holidays. For those who were planning to have cheesecake for Christmas, Kraft offered to pay customers $20 each to compensate them for the absence of their Christmas cheesecake. And they called it spreadthefeeling.com. Ta, are these attacks becoming so commonplace that companies are actually looking for ways to turn them into marketing opportunities? That's a, that's a great observation. And I feel like this may be true for only a one-off instance, but if we started seeing trends of companies uh, experiencing cyber attacks and they were turning them into marketing opportunities, that would essentially raise some flags. And this honestly depends on the nature of the company that's attacked. So the example you just gave me about Kraft, I mean, they are a food production company. So they're providing uh, different types of um, dietary products to uh, individuals. And I feel like they did that thing just out of a good gesture. Whereas let's say if uh, your bank got hacked or your bank was uh, a victim of a cyber crime or a large data breach, uh, I, it would be hard for them to spin that off as a marketing opportunity because they are holding a lot of people's financial information. So that would be challenging for them yeah. uh, and could cause actually, in turn, could, could uh, negatively affect their reputation. And in addition to what usually happens when there is a cyber attack is there is a whole investigative follow-up process. So team comes in, uh, teams come in and they try to find the source of an attack. And let's say if it was an outdated software that caused the breach or an attack, uh, they would go ahead and fix it and they would generate a report. And then it's usually the case where other organizations may even be using that sort of software so they would also get informed and 
would be required or at least advised to update that. And depending on uh, the nature of the attack, sometimes federal agencies do get involved, as we saw in the example of the Colonial Pipeline or the Equifax data breach, uh, where credit information was compromised. So if companies were to use this as a marketing opportunity and not be honest with their customers, I think this would raise some flags and it wouldn't fly long term. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Taha, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about you. Your life story is very interesting. You were born in Pakistan, lived in the UK as a child, and then returned to Pakistan as a 10-year-old. You completed your undergraduate degree in Pakistan before coming to the United States for graduate school. Is there anything about your youth in Pakistan that you miss? Yeah, I definitely miss spending time with my family. So I was 17 years old when I left home. It was back in 2007. And I haven't been back home uh, quite a lot since. Um, I do spend, uh, I do miss spending time with my old friends and uh, in my hometown, but most of them have, have moved out. And just the general uh, simplicity of, of life that how simple it used to be back in the day. How would you compare college in Pakistan to college in the U.S.? I feel like in the United States, there's a lot more opportunities in terms of areas and domains that one can explore in college. So there's more freedom to study and explore uh, because there are a lot more resources and a lot more faculty. So I was fortunate enough to go to a, a good school in Pakistan where I had good faculty who trained me in uh, computer science and electrical engineering. Um, but let's say there aren't any uh, really, really good schools for architecture or agriculture uh, and, and stuff like that. So I feel like uh, in the United States, if someone wanted to pursue uh, a career in something that's not technical, there's a lot more opportunities. When you moved to the United States to complete your doctorate at the University of Illinois, Chicago, was this the first time you had been to the U.S.? Oh, yes. What was it like moving to the United States for you? It was a really cool experience, and I was particularly fascinated about the fact that I had traveled the whole ocean and took a 14-hour flight to get here. Uh, so that was quite a memory. Yeah, the 14-hour flights, they, they hurt. Oh, yeah. So moving to the U.S. as an international student, what advice would you give to other international students who find themselves in that same situation? Right. So most people coming from other countries might experience that it's quite a big change because uh, there's a different system that they might experience as, uh, as back in their home countries. But the good thing about having a system here is that it's really easy to learn. So for example, I had not driven before, and I learned driving here in the United States. Hopefully and, not in Chicago. <laughs> Did you learn oh, how yeah, to drive in Chicago? In Chicago. Oh, in Chicago. And, and I, unfortunately, I failed twice. <laughs> um, so what, what, the cool thing was my friend who lived down in Urbana, which is a two-hour drive down from Chicago, had a car. So the two times I failed, I took my driving test down in Urbana. But then the third time, I took it in Chicago, and I passed. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought it would be the opposite. Hopefully, you didn't have to parallel park in Chicago. 
Oh yeah, we went to that DMV that didn't make them <laughs> uh, make people parallel park. <laughs> oh well, British backpacker magazine named Pakistan as the best travel destination of 2018. Pakistan is known for its ecotourism and the Pakistani people known for their hospitality. How would you describe Pakistan to someone looking for a travel destination? I think it's a really cool place to visit. Uh, one suggestion I do have is that when you when you visit certain areas, it's better to have local individuals with you who already have an experience exploring. Uh, Pakistan is really known for some of the mountains that they have in the north. So we have a lot of climbing and mountaineering community, international climbing and mountaineering community that go visit there and like to climb these mountains. And and generally, given the size of Pakistan, it's quite diverse. So there's four provinces. And in addition to visiting the north, which is very scenic and very beautiful, there's a lot of history in some of the big cities. For example, Lahore is a very old city, and there's a lot of history and historic buildings there. And similar, Karachi, which is one of the coastal cities, is fairly cool, and they have one of the best foods uh in, in Pakistan, yeah. Okay, so so I am a foodie um, and always curious about uh, different ethnic foods. What Pakistani food do you miss the most and what American food do you miss most when you're back in Pakistan? So I honestly miss a lot of the street food that I used to eat there, which, uh, you know, kind of food trucks you had in Chicago were similar in comparison, but not quite. But when I'm back in Pakistan, I honestly really miss eating Mexican food because really? that's something that's really hard to find. We have our chains of larger fast food restaurants such as McDonald's and Burger Kings and KFC. But like finding good local Mexican food is almost impossible. So I really miss eating Mexican food when I'm back home. Oh, that's great. Well, you, you come from a family of academics. Your mother and brothers uh, have PhDs. What did you all discuss when you were gathered around the dinner table? So our version of the dinner table is everyone on FaceTime and inside of boxes because <laughs> we're all in different time zones. Uh, <laughs> um, modern modern and, day dinner time. Oh, yeah. And w what we usually when we do talk about academics, it's usually like whose research is I wouldn't say the best, but like we, we try to sell our research and our own work. So I work in cybersecurity. My mom's she's a biologist. Uh, my brother, who's working in computer science, but he's working in computer vision and augmented reality. So he likes to talk about the projects he's doing. So we share experiences in, in general and and talk about research some, from time to time. So that's cool. Uh, it, it, it's nice to have other people in the family who who get your research and uh, or have been through similar experiences. I bet. So you moved from Chicago to Lexington. How are you adjusting to small town life? I honestly kind of like it. I've spent six and a half years in Chicago and it has a special place in my heart and there's always things that I'm going to miss about Chicago. But I did want to move to a small town and experience a life how it is in a smaller town. And I also wanted to be in a place that's not as flat as the Midwest. So <laughs> Lexington is, is a good change. And it, it, there's, there's a lot to do outdoors, which I love. What else do you like doing in the time that you're not on campus? I usually go out hiking with my wife. 
and we usually we've been to the Blue Ridge Mountains a couple of times. And I also have a motorbike, so when it's riding season, me and my friend we take a ride out uh, yeah. once in a while. Yeah, the Blue Ridge Parkway is a great location to do oh, that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, to wrap things up, I, I'm curious. You you began your time here at WNL during a pandemic, so your first year here was unusual to say the least. But much of WNL remains the same. What have you most enjoyed about your experience here? I feel like teaching has been the best part, and the fact that the students here are great and they're really appreciative and very respectful. And I truly, really value that coming here at WNL. And in general, I feel like everyone's been super supportive in helping generally newer faculty to get established and start their own independent program at WNL. So that's been great. So in closing, Taha, if you had one piece of advice in cybersecurity to give graduating students today, what would it be? I would advise them to stay up to date on what's going around in the technological world out there. We're living in a very fast-paced environment and things are changing at a very rapid rate. So keeping up to date on what's new, what's exciting, and what are the things that we should look out for is essential. That's great. Well, Taha, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you, Lifelong Learner, for listening today. We hope you'll visit our website, wlu.edu lifelong, where you can find out more about today's topic of cybersecurity, as well as a truly great selection of WNL after-class discussions, covering everything from 15th century Florence to the genetics of the Black Widow spider silk to the science of smell. Take a look, and until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.